Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Elevate Your Potential podcast with your host, Yusuf Sahib. Today is an exciting day because it is the launch of my very first podcast episode. Our very first guest is Walia Rahman, who is a business owner and director of one of the most successful property investment companies in South Wales. Walia has Bangladeshi parents, and we tap into what it was like growing up in South Wales and how his parents set the standards for him to be where he is at today. Before starting his own business, he climbed to the top of the corporate ladder and worked for some large companies that we have all heard of over a 10-year period, only to find out that it wasn't all it was hyped up to be. Walia realised that there was more to life than working every minute of every day, even though he was paid so handsomely. You can expect to hear why he chose to leave the corporate world after 10 years, what it takes to succeed working for some of the largest companies in the UK, why a six-figure salary doesn't make you happy, why self-development is so important, why all employees are replaceable, what traits do you need to succeed in the workplace, why he chose to stop trading his time for money, how he now helps others on their journey to financial freedom, and so much more. This conversation was so valuable for me, and it will be no different for you. So please let me know what you took away from the episode and let me know in your social media stories if you're listening. If you want to support the podcast from the very start, then please hit the subscribe button. I will be working to improve the show one episode at a time, and I am thrilled to have you here. I would just like to add that this first podcast was put together with minimal time or equipment as I just happened to be local to Aaliyah for a few days. We decided to do this podcast in person, and unfortunately, we had many technical difficulties, which ultimately meant our camera quality was poor and our mics didn't work from the start. We also hosted the podcast in a garage on a wet and windy day, so I apologised for the noticeable background noise and less than perfect audio quality. But... It's not all bad. What I can assure you is that from podcast episode number two, we will have the production level significantly better. Nevertheless, I know you'll still not want to miss this 90 minutes of great insight. For now, let's dive into this amazing conversation I had with Walia a few weeks back. I hope you enjoy. Well, Walia, thank you very much for being the first guest on my podcast. It means a lot. How are you? Yeah, very good. Thank you. In this cold, wet and windy um, December. It's nice though, it's nice. Good Christmas? Yeah, really nice. Nice time to spend a bit of time with my mum. Nice. Uh, so yeah, we had a very chilled, relaxing Christmas, which is what I needed. Cool. Right, we're just going to get straight into it. Mm. Go deep with the first question, okay? So, what does success mean to you? Oof, what does success mean to me? <clears throat> success used to mean um, climbing up the corporate ladder, you know, getting the next promotion, um, making sure that I'm achieving my objectives, my KPIs, getting that bonus at the end of the year, and then moving up the, the ladder. That was success probably about five years ago, four years ago. What it means to me now is um, more time. Yeah. So, like... It's weird, man. Like, I, I look at things completely differently now. So when I, me having my own time with my family and my friends is so much more valuable. And now yeah. I would say having more of that, um, having quality time with them 
is for me is what yeah. success means. Yeah, and we'll get into why that is maybe mm. in in a few minutes. I just want to touch on one thing that I've seen, um, and I want you to see if you know who said this. Heritage is something that makes me proud to be British, Bristolian, and Bangladeshi. I can't help but think of my struggles. My father, uh, I can't help but think of the struggles my father went through to build a business and raise a family in a much harsher societal climate to allow me to be the best I can be. I remember him teaching me lessons about having resilience, drive, and having the right motivation to succeed. Thank you, Dad. Deep. Damn. Do you know who said that? Yeah, that was me, man. Damn. Yeah, that was... Oh, you got me, bro. Do you want to touch on that? Yeah, let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, cool, cool, cool. So, obviously, my dad's uh, no longer with us, so he, he passed away back in 2000 when I was about 15, so back in school. Um... But yeah, you got me, bro. That was, I wasn't expecting that. I was, a bit, I thought I was coming here having a bit of fun. We know? will. We'll get to the fun. We'll get to Ooh. the fun. All right. Well, yeah. who is Willia deep down and, and maybe why? God, you went deep, man. So who am I deep down? I think yeah. I am the youngest of a family of seven. I don't feel like the youngest, though. Sometimes I'm the one that has to, like, manage all the politics in the family. <laughs> 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 and I'm telling off my brother who's 20 years older than me. I mean, you know, <laughs> saying it happens. I mean, right. So um, I think I'm someone who is, you could almost say like an alpha male. Yeah. That takes responsibility of his family, of his work, you know, uh, all of that kind of set up really seriously. But at the same time, I also recognise the role of my wife. And yeah. when it comes to... So we have, I would say, like a partnership almost, you know, where there'll be things that I accept that she is... Better. You know, or better. <laughs> like, bro, she asked, she's away for Christmas. She asked me to do bed sheets for it. <laughs> it took me like half an hour. But I can't do it. So you outsource but those things. I would outsource that to her. But, but there are things that she's just gonna take charge of yeah and i accept that and there'll be things that i take charge of and yeah. she accepts that and i think that's our kind of way we've managed our our marriage yeah um i'm very i would say i'm a dedicated father to my kids and moving i'll touch on later on you know why i came out of the corporate sector but yeah. actually i've got a better relationship with my kids and by better i mean i'm just present yeah i can go to their school concerts and their sports days and all that kind of stuff yeah so i think yeah being a positive influence on my children and being present being available all of that stuff is really important to me probably because my dad wasn't there for me yeah when i was younger he was there when he wasn't working but he used to own restaurants yeah similar to you actually he used to own restaurants yeah. right? so you yeah. know the graph that goes in so he was in the restaurant trade from the 60s um, came as an engineer and then moved into the restaurant trade. Um, so yeah, like we we hardly saw him, you know. But he was the bread owner, you know, and yeah. all of that stuff. Yeah, do you know it's crazy, right? So that that family ethos is really important to me. So you know, I live with my mom. Yeah, I'm almost forty. Yeah, right. <laughs> You're only laughing at me. No, I'm not laughing at you. I'm not laughing but, at you. But I look after my mom. She's yeah, yeah. seven years old. We're carers for her. We're not going to take her into a care home. Yeah. I mean, it's not easy, obviously. Yeah. Like, she's got, you know, dementia and she's got her needs, um, you know, appointments, all that kind of stuff. But 
but that's instilled in me from a young age. You know, she yeah. looked after you when you were young and vulnerable. It's your duty to look after her when she's old and vulnerable. Um, Are you listening to that, Mum? <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, like, so we've got guys coming in fitting carpets now. Yeah. And she's just so curious. She wants, she's like a child. She just yeah. wants to go in. She's getting in the way. And she's chit-chatting with the guys. And they're like, oh, uh, we, we just yeah. need to get along. And I'm kind of like, ushering my mum, you know, mum, let's, let's get in, you know. So it's almost like having another child in the family. Um, that ain't easy. Um, you know, people say, well done, Wally. I don't feel like I'm doing a great job with it. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Uh, because I'm struggling sometimes. Um, but at the same time, you know, it's rewarding because she values it and I know she appreciates it. But I see that as a sense of duty. That's my duty to, to her, to the house, to the family, all that kind of stuff. And we'll touch on some of the resilience as well a little bit later on. But just for five minutes, if we can go back, you know, to maybe school time. Um, obviously, growing up as a, a Bangladeshi kid, um, you know, how was that at school? You know, I went to a ghetto school. So I <laughs> so, uh, went to primary school. Uh, which was fine, quite multicultural. Yeah, you know, uh, went through it, coasted through it well. Um, I was okay at studying up to, you know, in the top quartile. But I wasn't the top A star student. I was probably in the top quartile, academically, socially. I was quite sociable. Um, had friends, you know, everywhere, which was cool. Secondary school, I think, is what defined me. Um, there's certain characters. I was thinking about this podcast last night, and I was like, who are the people that had influences in my life in the stages? Um, and uh, my tutor was one of them, hands down. Mrs. Button, like she is, uh, to this day, you know, that reverence that we have. Um, now, I've got a family of like academics, you know, they're all like teachers, professors, blah, 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 you know. Yeah. And um, they all like, it's a, it's, they're so proud of it. And I never really understood that until I came out of school and realised how much I valued the, my tutor, like the support, yeah. the challenge. They kick up the backside, <laughs> the nurturing, you know, there's so many facets to it. So, you know, I, I really appreciate when I hear someone's a teacher because I yeah. see what they're not just there to teach them, you know, their academic studies, they're there for the whole kind of package. So I think secondary school was really defining for me. Uh, I was involved in all of the after school clubs, yeah. all of the extracurricular stuff. <laughs> so... We'll get into some of the uh, corporate roles that yeah, you've yeah. done, um, but maybe just touch on a few of the jobs that you had before the corporate world. Obviously, yeah. you know, work was, you know, we'll get into the motivation of why you wanted to work and graft and, and all that kind of stuff. But what are some of the jobs that, that you had before corporate? Yeah, so um, school obviously shaped me. Um I was involved in, like I said, all the clubs and societies and all that kind of stuff. Um, and different groups of friends, and I think that helped. But I didn't learn anything. Like, we didn't even have to study, right, properly. Yeah. Like, we didn't really, really know how to study. Mm. So all of my friends went to one college, and I went to, like, one, like, two buses away. It was, like, on the outskirts of town, but it was a good college. Yeah. And that's when I learned to kind of really study. I became student union vice president, you know, did all of that kind of extracurricular stuff again so I always did extra right I was really driven by then my dad had passed away so I was even more driven to like I don't know what I was proving I reflect back on it now and maybe I was trying to prove something to him yeah 
you know, because I'm very driven. I don't know why I'm very driven. I ask myself that question a lot. Yeah. So after college, went to uni, um, banged out uni, like, you know, like uh, people make their friends for life at uni, right? My wife made friends for life at uni and friends, other friends did. I went to uni and I just smashed it out and came back to get a job. And um, I got a job. My first job was a, an education welfare officer. So um, I was also a trained youth worker yeah. as well. So I used to volunteer after, um, after school, after um, college. Um, and I used to help young, mentor young kids, you know, coach them, all that kind of stuff. So I got qualified. Um, and that helped me get this education welfare officer role. So here I am, young, cocky, 21-year-old, walk into an office in the council with you know, what was at the time majority, 40-year-old yeah. kind of women, some going through menopause. And I, I didn't have a clue what menopause was. <laughs> so my, coming from an Asian culture, is not something yeah. to talk about. Um, now in the workplaces, it's a very real thing. People talk about it. It's like, oh, yeah, we should, we should spread knowledge. So yeah. I'm like, it's freezing cold out there. Why have you yeah. fan on? Are you crazy? Or why, why, why is your palm so sweaty? You know? and they're like, oh. Yeah, I'm going from a medical. So I'm like, matter what? <laughs> like, Come on, young lads, let me teach you what the about the life. <laughs> so I learned about drinking green tea and peppermint tea and yeah, all sorts of. I think so. I had a lot of life lessons. I would say working in the council. Yeah, I was there for a good few years. I saw some mad stuff. Like we had child protection case conferences. I'd do home visits, and what got me, man, was. Um, there was a mum who'd overdosed and I was looking through the letterbox and could see her baby just crawling through in a sore nappy and there's like needles there. And yeah. that was hard, man. I, I was probably at 23 at the time, but that was tough. Like, So it seems from very early on that you were someone that, you know, wanted to give back. You wanted to give up your time for people maybe less fortunate for you. Yeah. 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 I mean, I've done some <clears throat> crazy stuff, bro. Like, you know, setting up youth, clubs yeah. not youth clubs uh, yeah well we did set up youth club bristol active youth service um it was run by young people all young people but before that i had a football thing that i used to do football training that was pretty cool yeah um but it got to it just came natural it wasn't something forced it was organic it wasn't like oh yeah i've got to do this to like yeah. get my name out or whatever there wasn't an agenda there it was just like actually let's do some coaching because we could all improve here yeah and we did it and we we then uh, I went on a FA coaching thing, some FA junior coaching badge or whatever it was the school sent me on. So I was like, great, like they've empowered me with this. Let me bring it back to my community. Uh, and so we, whatever the drill was, we would try and apply it to the game at the end of the, the, the training session. Yeah. And everyone would look forward to the game. So, yeah, we did stuff like that. That was cool. Um, and then I did get involved in like Bangladesh Association after school club, so helping kids there. So, yeah, I would say... Giving back was probably quite important to me. Uh, I, I don't know why. It was probably just something that's inherent. Um, but I look at my, all my sisters. They all give back in some yeah. way as well. So it's something obviously clearly built into us. So something interesting that, that caught my eye from seven years ago. You actually posted this on your LinkedIn. Um, and I just wonder... Because seven years ago was when you first started corporate, was it, roughly? Started climbing the ladder. Yeah, climbing the ladder about ten. Yeah, seven, yeah. But I was in the corporate sector for about ten years. For about ten years. Um, Something that you posted was, or one of the articles was, seven powerful morning routines of insanely productive people. And I'm just curious on, you know, why that was. Is that because... You already, you know, were you always looking for self-development? Were you 
you know, what are your morning routines now? Do you believe in the the cold plunge at six o'clock in the morning and and all of this, or do you like to just get up? No, I um okay. So this morning I woke up and I did a bit of um. I don't know, I'm not a, like a Pilates expert or a yoga <laughs> expert, right? My sister's taught me a few moves. I said, but I did that and I felt good. Like yeah. I was like, yeah, ready for the day. Um, I think it's driven from. Stephen Covey's Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. I've heard of that, yeah. Really, really good book. I think that was a game changer for me in the, in the corporate sector. Um, just managing stuff. I was really big on self-development. I still am. I still believe in, like, investing in yourself. I wasn't afraid of getting feedback and hearing negative things and then working on it. I did take it personally, like, you know, to heart. I took it as, right, it's a challenge. Yeah. So self-development was really important to, um, to grow. But yeah, I don't remember that post plan seven years ago. But but I ironically I do want to get a planche pool. Um because I I play a lot of football still. Yeah. Um and obviously I want to prolong that and I want to be able to like recover quickly and all that stuff. So yeah, I'd, I'd back that still. So I've been cold plunging every morning for about three weeks now. And to be honest, the best part of the cold plunge for me is just it's it's a bit cliche, everyone's saying this. But it's not so much the physical health benefits. It's more just, right, I'm going to do something that's hard for three minutes and set your day off. And whether it's placebo, whether it's whatever it is, I'm not sure what's happening. I do feel better when I get out of the cold plunge. But I'm doing one of the hardest things that I'm going to do that day. And that's why I personally like it. That's nice. So. Have you got one of those, um, is it an actual full-on immovable thing or is it one of those that you just 70 quid amazon yeah same benefits it's freezing it's put a lid on it not even ice at the minute because it's literally frozen when i take it off oh you're from up north though yeah i'm from up north i'm a southern ferry bill so So, motivation what motivates you now motivation so i talked about free time buying back my free time i think that motivates me a lot because i'm I understand the value of your own time. Um, I also started setting myself more KPIs. So look, I've been molded in the corporate sector. Um, I've had targets and KPIs and all sorts coming out my ears all my life. So it's the way I'm built. So given that I'm built that way, I'm like, well, actually, let's apply those that framework into my into my business, into what I'm doing now, day to day, and. One of the things that I used to have, well, I have a performance coach that I, I talk to. And she was saying, you don't actually reward yourself. Like you achieve something big, you know, you've achieved your biggest grossing month or whatever in your business. Yeah. And you're like, yeah, all right, good the next one. I'm sure I've seen you with the Rolex on. Ah. So, yeah. So I'm so, not even that guy, man. I'm not even <laughs> like, it's not even a, like, I don't know. Well, like, I did this thing called um, love language with my missus, right? Like, material possessions I was like two percent on like it doesn't I don't it's not that I don't value it it's not even a thing for me but she was like well what is it that you want as your first target like that's realistic and I was like well I don't have a watch all right well what's the best watch I can get you know to to make it uh um to achieve that target and so we started to set goals so first achieve the first target unlocks the watch do this you know the second KPI that unlocks the car so I don't have a car. I need to buy a car. Or I need to. I need to earn that car almost. Yeah, I can go out and buy it now and, yeah. and blow it, blow the money on it. But I need to achieve it. 
yeah. you know, um, one day I want a box at the Emirates, right? <laughs> but that's a target. That's on my list. That's one of the big... Uh, I don't know why you'd want a box at the Emirates, <laughs> but I can see the appeal, but just terrible club. Terrible, <laughs> terrible club. Apart from being top of the league. Isn't Liverpool top of the league at the minute? When Arsenal win tonight, they'll be... Ah, okay. Okay. When this comes out, Liverpool will be top of the league. So... We're going to dive deep into, you know, the corporate sector now. Um, why do you think so many young men typically, correct me if I'm wrong, but young men seem to want to be at the top, be at the man with the, be the man with the suit, you know, have the car, have the watch. They often come across very salesy, apprentice, you know, Lord Sugar. Why do you think that is? You sound like me when corporate sector. <laughs> no. Um, why is that? I think there is a... It's culture, isn't it? It's what, what you are seeing. You know, that's what the director, the, the guy who's achieving, um, you know, he's got the corner office, he's got the... He's the or she is the um, top of that department or high achieving, has a good reputation. That's why I aspire to be like, and so you start to model your behavior. That's how culture is formed, right? Yeah. That's kind of changing now in the corporate sector, I would say. Um, so I remember when I was at Nationwide, when I started there, they had like, like like a butler or something that would go to all the exec offices and it was like very prestige. You could, if you were to the exec floor, ooh, you know, and then... Um, we had a CEO come in, Joe Garner came and he just got rid of all of that. And, you know, you could have the old office spaces became yeah. meeting rooms and, you know, just got rid of that whole culture of it. So I think, I think it's kind of changing and, you know, like wearing power suits and all that, you know, I had like 10 designer suits. Yeah. It's all gathering dust now. I'd yeah. rather just wear, I mean, if I'm wearing formal wear, I just wear a blazer jacket and chinos. It's more comfortable that way. Yeah. So... I think from an imagery perspective, that's starting to change. I think COVID has helped that as well because people are starting to work from home more and all that stuff. But going back to the original thing, that whole like, you know, re high, uh, high achieving person wants to be quite salesy, quite, you know, they model their behavior on their, on their bosses and their and culture of that organization, what they, you know, what their senior figures are doing and the people that they aspire to be. In what advice would you give to someone coming out of the university now that wants to climb the, the corporate ladder? Well, as you know, um, because I was big on self-development and I, I took, I took the, um, the feedback, let's say, and I'd go out and get it. Uh, I would say, I kind of went like this. If you were to look at like a graph, it went, all right. This isn't my advice. This is something I've heard and I've applied. Um, I can't remember who it was. But whatever task you're given, whether it's a project, a task, a strategy that you've got to deliver, you do it like it's going to be, like, you know, to the best of your ability. You, you over-deliver with, if possible, right? Even if it's a task. Yeah. Now, I'm going to use a really silly example. You know, you come in, you're there to make tea and whatever, right? Make the best goddamn tea that you can You can do. You know, put the... Don't just be like, bah, 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 get it out. Like, do it meticulously that 
you re, you know, maybe get the water levels right and the, you know, the amount of sugar or whatever, you know, and, and just get it done. And I'm I'm using a really silly example, yeah. but but get the task done to the best of your ability. It makes sense because I was listening to a recent podcast with um, James Milner, the footballer. And he was saying how even when he broke into the first team, he was very young when he when he started playing football in the first team. But even at the age of 18, I think he was, when he broke in or 17, he was cleaning the first team players' boots still. And he said that he was going to be the best boot cleaner. And he attributes a lot of his motivation and a lot of his attention to detail to even when he was much, much younger and he was the one that wanted to clean the boots and he was the one that wanted to earn his way from the very bottom to eventually several cups for England and, and moving on. Can I use can I use that as an example? Because this is, um, again, I talk about key figures in my life. Yeah. Rob Heaton is another okay. one. Uh, my first boss at TSV Bank. Um, very, like, really supportive yeah. manager he was a really supportive manager and I was trying too hard looking back now and he was like just be you like, you don't have to be like all like almost fronting just just be not like be and I think that so go to what you said so that that figure or bit salesy bit is bit that I was probably that guy coming into TSB bag but Rob was just like listen dude just be you like yeah. be genuine and I had to deconstruct how I'd been built when I got to TSB. Well, it was Lloyd's Bank Group. We were working on the split of Lloyd's TSB and then I moved into the TSB bit. Because now knowing you for a while, you don't come across as that stereotypical, cocky, brash, money-hungry. It seems like, like you say, maybe those were your motivations when you were just getting into corporate. I mean, you might not have got into corporate if the pay was minimum wage, but then you found more to life and more to you you probably found a why and i'm sure we'll get into that when we get into your current business yeah. now I, do you know I'll, I'll just um come on to that actually i used to lie to myself i thought i wasn't money hungry and da, da, da. money was a motivation absolutely it was because i was earning good money i was earning yeah. good bonuses da, 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 and, and, and you know you want that next but i was kind of lying to myself so if you asked me this question 10 years ago whenever I've probably been, no, you know, it's all about self-development and da-da, but let's be honest, man, like, I took the the crap because I wanted to go up the, the ladder. But self-development was equally as important. And, and another thing that Rob said to me, actually, that was really interesting, using football as an analogy, he said, think of who you are in this whole department. What football player are you? Like, where are you in the, in the football pitch? Like, who are you like? What would you liken yourself to? James Milner, as an example, wasn't the, like, he's not a Ronaldo, right? No. But he did, he grafted. Yeah. And he worked hard and he, he worked, you know, and that's why he's lasted so long. And I probably wasn't the best product manager, assistant product manager, whatever it was at the time. Um, but I wouldn't liken myself to James Milner. I probably have more talent than him in the product space. Natural talent. Natural talent. Charisma. All of yeah. that sort of stuff. So I was probably, if I was, I still struggle with it. I do ask myself that question sometimes. What yeah. football player am I like? Yeah. I wasn't a Ronaldo or Messi. Are you a leader? Are you someone that likes being led? Are you a self-starter? Are you the hard work? You know, yeah. and it takes a, a culmination of, of three yeah. or four of these things 
to do exactly. the best. And, and I think all I needed was the right manager yeah. to unlock things. Yeah. And then my leadership capability, all of that, I start to, well, I'm like. So again, something that I've seen um, was that when you were at Nationwide, you won an award named the Pride Award. Do you remember what that was for? Oof. God, you did some research on me, man. The reason I say is because all of the things we've spoke about and all of the traits that you've got, it's no surprise that you that you won the Pride Award. I'm wondering if you know what the Pride Award was, was for. Yeah, it's, um, I delivered. Again, do you know what? Uh, I wasn't the best product manager in that department, I would have said. I was not coasting. I was very big on self-development, but I was improving, right? Yeah. And I delivered on this project. Uh, it returned a huge amount of money for Nationwide. I was looking after the life insurance products at the time. And we met like a five-year target within the space of a year because I'd really got into the detail of the analytics, really understood the, um, the customer, potential customer, how to target them. We ran campaigns, all that kind of stuff. I also um, simplified a very complex life insurance product. Again, you think that was really easy. Oh, yeah, well, this, this, this. But it's a regulated product. There's so many loopholes you've got to go through. Um, and it wasn't our product. It was run by Legal in General. So we had to work with Legal in General to get them to convince them to do it and go through their loopholes as well. So it was a huge amount of work to make the product a better product for our clients. And we knew it was a better product for our clients because we'd done a huge amount of research before that to understand their um, pain points, what they want, what they don't want, what's a gimmick, what isn't, all that kind of stuff. And I think when I was working at Nationwide at the time, um, the culture was very much so, I mean, I've worked for corporate companies, right? And you know, you'd have a picture of the MD and be like, we believe in blah, 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 you know. <laughs> Nationwide had it in their veins, like it was their DNA to really care about what they call their members. It was, and that's why I still bank with, I've worked with those banks, yeah. but I bank with Nationwide. This isn't a promo for Nationwide, <laughs> but they really cared like about their, their, you know, their customers, their members, as they call them. So I'd say that's pretty bang on in terms of what the pride was, was won for. It was for putting members first, rising to the challenge, inspiring trust, doing the right thing in the right way, and excelling at relationships. And all five of those things are probably your key values for the business that you run today, which again, I've said it several times, but maybe when you step back and you, you look at, you know, the articles I was talking about before, how you mentioned about your dad at the start, now, you know, um, this award that you've won, it's kind of been a recurring pattern all the way throughout your career from the ages of three, four, five, six, seven, eight, all the way up until now. Damn. Which I thought was, was really That's interesting. I, I've never looked at that. I mean, you must be absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> it's the first podcast, so I've got to do something right. <laughs> you must be stalking that LinkedIn, man. <laughs> I've always been like active on LinkedIn, so that's probably why it's all there. But that's mad. mad. Yeah. Like, I hadn't. I knew sense of community, sense of doing right, having integrity, you know, all of that stuff is just instilled. Partly that's faith. That's instilled that in me from a young age and spirituality. Yeah. Partly that's just family values. 
you know, talk from dad and mom and, you know, yeah. family, wider family. Um, and then there's, there's the drive. I don't know where the drive comes from. Yeah. Like I've asked myself the question. So after Nationwide, I think you ended up Buka. Buka. Is that right? Yeah. yeah. Why the change in um, scene? I, well, like I'd achieved everything I could do at Nationwide. Nationwide was starting to change as a business as well. It was starting to be, it was turning more corporate. What I felt, why I stayed at Nationwide for such a long time was it was a fine balance between like almost running as a social enterprise. Yeah because they didn't have shareholders. So, you know, there was a whole sense of purpose of doing good. Um, there was a sense of, yes, you're making money, but you're doing it for the right things. Yeah. And obviously drive to achieve best and also mastery of your product area. Right? When I mastered it, I'd achieve rewards, I'd achieve profit targets, all of that kind of stuff. And I'm like, well, okay, what's next? <laughs> and Booper, um, actually approached me. So um, they similarly have very similar values. They don't have shareholders. They're a massive global company, as you know. And um, they came to be able to look after financial services. So at this point, is your life on the trajectory of what you wanted? Did you think at still this point you've done how long at Nationwide? About four years. About four years. You've now gone to, to Bufa, and now are you thinking this is going to be me for the next... 20, 30 years, or is this still just another stopgap, some experience? What are your top tip? Never stay in a role for more than three years. Why? Because you get stale, you get comfortable, and essentially you can start to become institutionalized. Okay. Right. Um, so, sorry to interrupt. If you're going to be scaling your business, what would you say to your staff? when it gets to three years and they go, it's only been three, it's been three years now. See you later, will you? No, not stay in a role, not in the company. Okay. So change roles. Change roles. Because it keeps things fresh in your mind as well. And in a corporate sector setting, um, somewhere like TSB where I worked or what was Lord TSB, but in yeah. the TSB side, it was just like, you had to be jack of all trades. So you had to do lots of little bits. Whereas an established pair like Nationwide, you have to have mastery of your narrow area. And, you know, three years is a good enough time to have delivered on a few things. You know, you first, uh, there's a book called The First 90 Days. You know, it's where you get your quick wins in and get your kind of embedding. If you embed well in, in your first 90 days, you're, you know, you should have a good career. You should have the good, you know, credibility, reputation, all that stuff. And the stakeholders to help you to deliver. And then, you know, year one, year two, year three, and then actually, you know, between year two and three, you should be starting to think about where's my next step. I think for anybody that's listening as well, that, that is wanting to get into the corporate sector and and climb that ladder, what's the, the atmosphere like at work? You know, what's the, you said that Nationwide was an amazing place to work for. Is that all the way from the person that's making the tea all the way to the, the, the manager and, and the guys at the top? Yeah, I'd say so. And how would you say that Bufa compared to Nationwide yeah. in terms of their ethos? So I agree. Nationwide had it in their DNA. Like it was a very well-established um, model. And Graham Bill, who was the previous CEO, had obviously established that. 
but um, he'd navigated the, the business through um, the credit crunch and all sorts, right? So he'd, he'd taken a pounding through all of that. Our cost to income ratio was flying through the roof. And, you know, whilst that's not a great thing, uh, the culture was phenomenal. And that was right from the CEO down. Joe Garner came along, who'd come from BT. He's now left uh, and there's someone else new in there. But he came in, he tried to keep the values, but he tried to make Nationwide more profitable. So, you know, did did new things, changed the culture, adjusted it, modernised it, all of that stuff. That worked for some, that didn't for others. They start to have, like, redundancies and all that stuff, which was unheard of. Um, so I, I felt it was starting to become more corporate in the sense of, like, you know, moving away from those traditional values that it had. Um, saying that, if you compare it to some of the other larger you know, players, it's competitors, I would say nationwide are right up there as a um, employee, employer to work for. How does it compare to Bupa? Uh, very similar values. Um, I think Bupa, I would say is more in tune with the old school nationwide. Mm. So I definitely made the right move. I moved into the dental division of Bupa and we had just taken over or bought out Oasis Dental. So it wasn't quite Bupa, but a Bupa badge on it. So we had to go through this whole cultural shift and driving the business to profitability, but also trying to like uh, enrich it with Bupa culture. And I was a good fit for that. And I, I led on what we call EDNI, Equality, Diversity, Inclusion, uh, yeah. just as a side thing of my job, because nationwide, um, you know, culture and all that kind of stuff that I've been brought up with. So I was a good fit for that. And, and that was called... Um, BU at Bupa, so it's a new initiative and it's still going on now. What three like traits do you think you need to succeed in the corporate sector? Yeah, it's a good question. I think the first one that springs up that like is screaming at me, integrity. If you don't have integrity, man, you get found word, out. You get found out. You you bring hot air. Your word is meaningless. Credibility is such a big thing in anything, right? Even in business, but corporate sector, like. You know, if you don't have credibility within your department or within other departments, with you know, there's small businesses within a big business. If you like, if you like, in products, you're almost like there's a saying. You know, you're a mini managing director of your product area because you are the middle person. If you own the PNL for that product, you are the mini MD for that, and you've got to make everything else work. Working with marketing, finance, research and development, you know, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, you know. So if you don't have integrity with, you, with what you're doing, why would they want to work with you? Like, because I'm calling on favours. Like, yeah. they'd have to work for, like, there's other product lines, right, that they're going to be prioritising. Yeah. And I had a smaller product, right? So mine was, like, life insurance. Okay, life insurance was good margin, but it wasn't, like, you know, as much money-making as, say, personal loans yeah. or credit cards or overdrafts or investment products. Do you know what I mean? So, you know, but life insurance was the second biggest margin product so I had to get more volume in because the margin was great but why would people from marketing prioritize my work over loans or yeah. whatever right and that came from relationship building having integrity so integrity one integrity is very important the second one I would say is drive and that you know you talked about introverted people and extroverted people you can still have drive regardless of what personality type you are right I think it's really important that you've got the, the motivation, the drive, you do what, it, so 
this goes back to my company values, you know, integrity, trust, do what it says on the tin. We call it yeah. the Ron Seal effect. Yeah. So again, talking from my personal perspective, have drive um, and make sure that you deliver on the stuff that you say you're going to deliver on, you know, manage expectations well, all yeah. that stuff. And the third thing I would say is do what you say on the tin, right? So if I yeah. say to you as my boss, I'm going to deliver that paper or that business case or whatever it is, or even if it's just a stakeholder, or even if someone that's a, a different department, and I don't deliver on it, again, it goes back to your credibility, right? Yeah. So deliver on the things that you say you're going to deliver on, um, and move hell on earth to do it, man. Yeah. And I've done that. I've done it overnights. I think it's. I think that's going to be really useful for people listening because there are going to be people that are right at the start of their corporate journey, and might be getting into it for the wrong reasons. Um, and I think it's important to to hear from someone that's been there and done it um, so they can, you know, prepare themselves on, on what it's going to take. And... Yeah. So so I spent a lot of time trying to establish what is it that I want to do. So I, I actually help new grads. Soul uh, searching. <laughs> well, yeah, it's like career coaching. Yeah. So Nationwide sent me on this course um, to help people from minority ethnics because they weren't progressing as quickly as their white counterparts. However, they were probably more qualified, right? So why is that? What's, is it a cultural thing? Is it, you know, et cetera. So they, you know, and I showed an interest in it. So they sent me on this like course to go and do, you know, on top of my day job. Yeah. And there's a thing about having enterprise leadership. So again, one of the things I'd say to your viewers is don't just do your job. You know, I talked earlier about do whatever the task or project or whatever it is to the best of your ability. Like, you know, if it's sharpening a pencil, make it the, yeah. the best sharpened pencil or if it's a project, like make sure it is it is done to the best of your ability. In the same way, yes, keep that and do that. But then also, there's the thing about in a large corporate sector having enterprise leadership. So that's doing extra, right? Mm-hmm. So I got involved. I talked to you about EDNI stuff or BU at Bupa or like um, at TSB. It was helping to shape the pro- uh, the culture of TSB. What is it that we want to be? helping to organize the end of year events and all of that kind of stuff, right? Why did I do all of that? Um, that was just me demonstrating over and above my little area that I was working in, that there's more to me, Yeah. but also I enjoyed it. And so it's, it's shown enterprise leadership across the board. So I would say, take those opportunities. You've said that you, that you feel like they really cared. So I'd be interested to know, do you think the owners and the founders really do care about their staff or are you just a number? Are you replaceable? That's a really good question. Because you you might feel like you are the guy. Do they really value you, how they make you feel? So I'm going to sound a bit contradictory, right? But I'll explain why. In the corporate sector, you're just a number. Let's be honest. You're a payroll number. You you are exchanging your time for money. Yeah. That's all you're doing. Yeah. And you've got to deliver on that. that what they're paying you to do. In a basic form, that's what it is. Are right? you paid fair for the work you do? I felt I was. I was paid well. Yeah. Um, as I worked up. And again, if you change companies, you could command a higher salary yeah. because they've they're employing, think of it this way, right? When I've got case to this. Yeah. So, so here's an example, right? 
if I've not promoted someone from internally, okay, who is going to be a cheaper uh, kind of, uh, okay, it sounds a bit raw, but they're going to be cheaper resource for me. Because if you think, if they've come from internally, so let's just say they've gone from an assistant manager to a manager, right? They're going to start on the bottom banding of that manager level. Because from a, if you think from a skills perspective, they've just got into that role. So they yeah. start there. And then with yearly pay rises, they go up and up and up. Okay. Yeah, definitely. So that, that's the, let's say the, the concept behind it. If I've not found anyone internally for that, and I've now gone externally, I have to pay a bit more money. Right. So if I, so switch it up from a candidate's perspective, if I've switched companies, let's say I'm now working in company A and I've moved to company B, well, I've got more negotiating power to ask for more money because you've not found a candidate internally. So you've gone outside of your company yeah. to, to recruit. Yeah. So I've got a bit more negotiating power and I was very good at negotiating my salary, I felt. Um, and so I feel like I was a pay, I was paid, a, I would say a fair amount. Um, you know, mid to top quartile. Obviously, I would do my research. I would use um, Glassdoor and all yeah. that kind of stuff to to see where I'm at or what for that role in that region where, where that is. And so I would use that as a guide to help me to understand, you know, what I'm worth. Remember, we're ex again, it goes back to we're exchanging our time for money. So what are you worth in your mind? What is it that yeah. you would be happy with? You know, if I was going to get a salary that I wasn't happy with, then I'm going to stay in that role for long. I'll be there for a year and I'll be going because I'm, I don't, I don't value what, what you're paying me. Yeah. So there's nuances there that you've got to think about. So I did interrupt you a little bit there. So you would say you, you did feel valued there. So going back to the question. In terms we, of, are you, are you just a number? Yes. Simple answer is yes, absolutely. You are just a number. However, the working environment is more than just, you know, you come in, you go do your bidding, you go in. There's this whole thing about making you feel good about where you work. Now, look, we're all job slags now, right? <laughs> Let's be honest. The whole years, the, the days of like staying in the company for 30 years is, is diminishing. Let's be honest. People aren't doing it. Most of the time they stay in for 30 years. I mean, my uncle stayed in, um, he worked for Virgin Trains. He was there for 40 years. And I think they bought him a, a golf bag or something. You know? So, there you go. So I think that, Loyalty from a candidate's perspective is diminishing. And as a new generation who are just graduating coming in, they you know, they, they, they have more demands on what they want. I want to work from home, I wanna this, I want that, you know. So I think employers are are adjusting to that. Um so but at the same time, I don't believe that people staying for long, long periods of time is a you know, it's a diminishing thing. I think you can make people stay longer by creating a fantastic culture yeah. and by giving them good benefits and, you know, making them see the value in all of that stuff. So it goes back to what I do in my business, right? Which is, you know, you keep adding value to the business. Mm. It's not just a, a coming for the salary. It's now all oh, the, the holistic aspect, the management are good. I trust in the leadership. I like all of the benefits. I've got my healthcare. I've got my car. I've got da, da, da. So now, You've given it all up. Well, it's like, well, why would I want to leave? Like, it's a bit long to leave now. I might as well just, you know, I'm enjoying it. And they, and, and I've got, you know, the dangling the carrot. So I've, I've, I feel like I'm being progressed in the organisation. And those are the things, the ingredients that allow people to, in my opinion, allow people to um, stay longer or would influence people to stay longer. Yeah. 
I think that's really valuable. So, Zealous, mm. this is your third stop of the of the large yeah. corporate companies that you that you worked for. The fourth. Yeah, yeah. Why the change again? So Zealous, uh, there was a director of product role. Again, they approached me. Uh, I've been talking to them about six months prior, but I was already probably about nine months to be honest. But I, I, they, they approached me for a role, and I was like, ah, oh, it's. it's you know, there's not enough money in it for me. Sorry, you know. But we just kept in touch because uh, there's, I think they're called resourcing manager. They're like an internal recruitment person. He he was a good guy and um, I was local and obviously I'd worked for some of the biggest brands and had good reputation. Um, so we just, we just kept in touch and then a director role came up and there was a good fit and negotiated and um, I was like, you know what? Just gonna do it, man. So I'm sure uh, you know it's much of the same. It's much of the same traits that you need. Mm. You're still leading a team. We've talked about all of that, mm. but you've been making money at this point, or a decent salary, well above the national average for you know ten years. By the time you'd finished, mm. what had you been doing with your money? Had you been saving it? Had you been splurging it? Had you been investing it? Yeah. What what were you doing with it? Okay, so when I, let me go right back. Yeah, this is going to be a long answer to a, a short question. Yeah. Right? Uh, so I talked about when I finished uni, it was just focused. Got my first job. I was earning in the council twenty five grand a year. It's a good salary for a twenty one year old. Yeah. Back then in two thousand and five, six, something like that. Well, it's the national average now if, yeah. when you take out London, so. And and we had pay rises every two, every every six months, right? So that went up to about 30 grand very quickly mm. within a few, you know, and the pay rises were good. Pre-credit crunch, remember? Yeah. So councils had money. Um, so I was earning good money, right? I'd never seen that kind of money, like, in my bank account. I was a student, right? <laughs> so I'm like... <laughs> <laughs> and do you know what? I, I didn't... I had aspirations to buy a house and do this and do that. Yeah. Didn't do anything. Splurged it. Yeah. Bought good clothes. I look good though. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Bought a nice car, a nice coupe, all of that stuff. And um, it was hollow, man. I, I worked there for, I think after about two or three years, I was like, I've got 500 quid in my savings. Like, you know, obviously contribute to the household. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So did my bit as a son, you know, to my mom and all that stuff. But I didn't really save any money. I didn't achieve the investment aspirations I had hoped. I, I always I always knew, you know, invest, put your money in stocks and shares, put your money in property, da, 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 right? Books and mortars. Yeah. Didn't do any of that. So I was like, crap, okay need to you know so i moved out of the council and then we've worked for some kind of smaller education firms yeah. and I, I actually got made redundant from from one I worked for a national charity and just before the credit crunch and the credit crunch happened they ran out of money so I got redundant from there i was like oh my god like why do i not invest in things so i needed a slap in the face to get me to value or not value get me to start investing yeah. and think about long-term future yeah so I, and that also shaped me in the sense of I was never going to be made redundant again and be without money. So those two things really drove me. That, that, that shifted my paradigm. I think we're going to touch on that in just a minute after you've finished yeah. as well. Ain't no one, like, I'm, I'm taking back control. 
and that feeling of being made redundant. That's why when I hear occasionally on LinkedIn, I'll put a post up when I hear my ex employer, they're making their annual call, they're getting, you know, I'll put a post up because I feel it, man. And for some of them, they weren't ready for it. And it's just like a big slap in the face. And then I, so when you started making a larger salary, yeah. what, at what point did you then go, you know, right, let me start investing. Let me start putting some stuff away. And yeah. were you, you know, how, how long did it take you to get into that mindset? Because I know a lot of people would rather go spend 30 grand on a car and think that that's a great investment because it's going to be fun. You're going to drive a 30 grand car. It's going to be great. Or you can buy a house and it's going to pay you a recurring monthly income. I did both. Bought the car, you know. Fun for a day? Yeah, great, great, you know, great for the first two weeks. And okay, now it's just a car and it's bloody expensive on fuel. Yeah. <laughs> it didn't fuel me with that fulfillment, right? The trigger was uh, 2013, 10 years ago. I bought my first house. Um, it was a great opportunity. I just did it. Yeah. I always wanted to anyway, didn't know what I was doing. I was, um, you know, managing it myself, do, like all of the wrong thing, all the things that, that you shouldn't do in property in terms of like, you know, um, how to manage builders, how to manage tenants, all of that stuff I was doing wrong. But I, I, I took action. Yeah. So even if you don't have the right strategy or the right roadmap or whatever, if you just take action, you can still make money on it. I'm not emotionally tied to any of my properties, but that one is the one because that was like that's day one you know yeah the catalyst that was a catalyst so i bought the first property mismanaged it for about four or five years mm -hmm. um back in 2013 so i was working in banking i had a bit of money um i when i was in the corporate sector obviously i did start to save um you know i had better kind of say i would say saving habits but inflation was still going above like inflation was still more than what i was saving yeah and i I hadn't realized then that I could make more money than what I would be getting in the bank, right? Yeah. Um, even through an ISO or whatever, right? So that hadn't unlocked in my brain yet, but I knew bricks and mortar was what I wanted to do. So I, yeah, bought the house, mismanaged it for a while, you know, but, but earned a bit of £100 here, 70 quid there, but yeah. not really real money. And then it was only when I was at Nationwide, someone was leaving, and I was like, oh, it's quite ancestral banking, right? So, yeah. well, which bank are you moving to? And he's like, I'm not, I'm, I'm retiring. I'm like, retiring? Bing, 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 yeah. bing. Teach me sensei, you know? Yeah, yeah. And uh, he was like, BRR, BTL, HMO. It just went all over my head, right? Yeah. I, I didn't have a Scooby-Doo. But I realized then I needed to change my mindset because I was that guy that was like, you know, I'm going to work till I die. You know, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm a hustler. I'm, yeah, I'm a good worker. I'm, I'm going to work my way up. A coach of mine actually said that it takes great confidence to, to take a day off. Oh, yeah. And I think that's super powerful because when you have confidence in your preparation, you know that you can take a day off and just pick it back up again. So having confidence to take a day off now always sticks with me. I always tell other people. That's nuts, man. In Bupa, I remember, and zero days off, I remember in one year. I think that was June 2020. No days off. Um, great for your ego. Oh, great. I've done 365 I'm, days. I'm a hard worker. I was like mentally, 
physically drained. That's kind of why I left for Zealous as well. Because yeah. I, I just, I'd had enough. Because I was exhausted. I needed a new challenge. So, so 10 years into your corporate career. Yeah. On a scale of one to 10. Yeah. Starting year one, how happy were you? Year one of corporate, how happy were you on a scale of one to 10? 10 being fantastic. Yeah. Five. Five. Can I tell you why? Why? I was getting the recognition. I was getting from, I, I was at Metrobank and I was yeah. working my ass off. Um, you know, they seven day week, blah, 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 you know, climbing up, getting good reputation. I was in London. I didn't enjoy London. I lived in London for 10 months or nine, two odd months, whatever it was I was there for. I didn't enjoy it yeah. because I was just working. So I, I literally, work was everything. So work was everything. And yeah, how, how can you enjoy it? That was a, like, I didn't have a life. Occasionally saw friends, but I, I'd, they all meet up and they're yeah. all wearing normal clothes. I'm rocking up in a suit because I've like rushed from the office straight to the, to the dinner, you know. It's, that so, was so at year five, where do you think you were on the happiness scale? One to 10? Five, again, damn man. And then, shall I explain why? This, yes, but in a second, because I think you'll be able to to lead into it. Something that you told me off camera was, and I think this will surprise a lot of people that are listening, was you had to escape. You had to escape the corporate world. You told me over a voice note actually that that I just had to escape, and I was thinking escape. You had. A great salary. You had, obviously, this is the materialistic things. Obviously, your family and stuff have, have always been a, a major priority for you. But you had a nice car. You have a Rolex watch. You can have holidays. On the surface, you've got everything that an 18-year-old would want when they get to 25, 30, 35, 40, 45. But yet, you want to escape. Why? So people hear six-figure salary, they're like, whoa. When your mindset shifts, I talked about that time where that mindset started. I needed to work on that mindset, and I did, right? Yeah. And then it became, it was like a light bulb moment. It was like, whoa. I started to look at the world differently. I remember I went on this course, nothing to do with property. It was just like a, it was called the Landmark Forum. It's very Americanized, but it used a lot of psychological techniques almost you could say to really start to find your blind spots so there's a thing called the jihari window what you know about yourself what you don't know about yourself all that kind of stuff but your blind spot is you don't know what you don't know i won't get all technical about it you don't know what you don't know and so you the blind spot is that and it's searching for those things yeah. when i start to search for those blind spots i start to know more about myself and i realized then is i want to invest my way out of this the reason why i want to invest my way out of this so this was a plan from i'd say 20 15 is when that from the first house that you yeah. bought so first house 2013 didn't do anything 2015 2016 is when they started to so i knew about it but i didn't do anything about it so you were saying that five years into the corporate career halfway through you were still at a five on the happiness scale that's because you maybe thought or tell me if i'm wrong you already kind of had one foot in and one foot out because you knew from the first house that you bought 
that I'm not going to be doing this forever. No. No? I thought the first house that I bought was, you know, that would be for my son or daughter when I, you know, when I eventually have kids and yeah. I pass it to them, right? And that was a mindset, was that would just be the one. Yeah. Um, and that changed when I started to realise as I, you know, the light bulb moment happened, I went on some courses to start to change my mindset. Then I realised I can use property to unlock this lifestyle that I wanted. So that that's the journey I went through. Yeah. I then... Again, it's all mindset shifting. So I start, and it's done in phases. It didn't happen overnight. Only about probably four or five years after I bought that first property, I then realized, okay, this is the strategy I'm going to use to start and I'm going to build a portfolio. And actually, I can retire on that, but that portfolio could be, you know, take, take 10 years to build or whatever it was. So it's that point, five years into it, um, into my banking career is when I realized it. But it wasn't one foot in, one foot out. I thought it was going to take me years. Um, but I just did deals and I took action. Yeah. Had a vision, had a strategy, and ex laser-focused execution. Oh, I had people, come, bro, you can flip this property. Or Ethereum, man, that's the next best thing. Or, the gurus. Oh, there were so many things to, like, don't get me wrong, not hating on any of that, because, yes, yeah. like I'm like, oh, actually, I could do. But if you're focused on that one thing to get there... I call it laser-focused execution. Instead of getting the shiny penny. Yeah, it, it, it kind of, uh, what's the word? Uh, snowballs, yeah. Snowballs, and it compounds, and it just... Like, yeah. And that's what got me quicker. So by the time I'd started working at Buka, I was like, I was still working on my property stuff, like, massively. And when I got to Zealous, it was, like, really snowballing. Yeah. And that's why I was able to quit my job. And so I gave up a six-figure salary. Yeah. And I just quit. Uh, because I was earning enough now, earning the same as I was from my salary. Yeah. So corporate career is done. You've done everything and achieved everything that you thought you could achieve. But tell everybody, you know, what, what was next. And yeah. obviously you've started uh, a property investment consultancy. Yeah. Go ahead, take the floor. So I always wanted to be that guy, right? I always wanted that director role. Finally got there, right? You know, worked my little socks off, got there. And it was just, you know, there wasn't anything. Undefined mark deck? Yeah. So when I was in banking, you know, you want to be that guy or you want to have that responsibility. You get there and you're like, well, you still have a boss. <laughs> you still got targets, didn't you? You're still working for the people. Still can't sleep in. I was making millions of pounds for these yeah. companies. I wasn't making millions of pounds. <laughs> Bring me a good salary. Yeah. They're giving me a good salary, but I wasn't making the money that yeah. I was making then, you know? Uh, so it was quite. How shall I put it? Like almost like the, the shackles were off. Like I felt like something had come off my neck. It was a really weird feeling because I still get imposter syndrome. I'm what, 18 months, two years? I can't remember how many, how long now, 18 months since I quit properly. I still get imposter syndrome, man. Like, you know, because I, 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 I'm, the system is ingrained in me because that's all I've known since school. Since primary school, you're taught. 
you work, you know, you do your education, you work, you pay into the system, you retire, you get a pension from the state. But it sounds like you get excited by that imposter syndrome. Oh, I don't know, man. But I, I... Because having imposter syndrome for a lot of people will mean that they don't want to do the thing that's giving them imposter syndrome. Whereas I think a trait of a lot of entrepreneurs is I'm getting imposter syndrome. That's going to allow me to grow. So I'm going to do it, even though I don't want to do it. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I don't really thought about it that way. Yeah. So I think that's... Use it to drive me. Use it to drive you. Yeah. Whenever you feel like you don't belong there, you're probably in the right room. You know how they say that you, you never want to be the smartest in the room. Always search to be the person in the room that you don't belong in or you don't feel like you belong in. It's interesting. Because I'm very comfortable being uncomfortable. Yeah. And that comes from maybe this whole drive for personal development. Yeah. But I'm very, like I said, happy to be uncomfortable, to be pushed, pulled. And that goes to what you just said there. Yeah, I'm happy to be in a room that I don't belong in. Yeah. And be very confident and yeah. comfortable in that. Yeah. So dive into the business model. Yeah. So um, good job. Yeah. <laughs> I'm free and I can live free and that lasted 24 hours and then I started <laughs> uh, sometimes they ask why the hell did I do it man um, so we're going to get onto that as well in a second you say yeah. why the hell did I do it yeah I, no, I don't say that all the time sometimes when it's like oh yeah. my god this is like lol so I create this model whilst um, obviously when I bought my first one went through the mindset shift and then I start to like you know educate myself and, and and build and build and build. Yeah. Uh, and that allowed me to create almost like a conveyor belt. Mm -hmm. So I could buy it, you know, using the technical BMV below market. So I was finding property that was cheaper than the market. I was able to add some good builder contractors now. You know, don't get me wrong, I'd been ripped off by them. I'd been, I'd pay, overpaid for property. I you know, did all of the mistakes, right? Yeah. But when, you, when you've made that mistake with your own cash, you could bet your second dollar, you, you know, you, you ain't going to make that same mistake again when it's so your you, own money you've gone from handling large amounts of money that's not yours to all of a sudden like, handling your like, own savings that you've worked hard for for the last well since you were younger but the last 10 years where you've been making you know good money that's crazy isn't it and and some people this is where that mindset comes in some people that, so I've got clients now that I don't know you've got to have the mindset for it you've got to have the balance of risk and reward so you know so i had the mindset for it. i was happy to take calculated risks remember i i manage regulated products so i i'm about growing but growing safely yeah so i've got this great model that that has allowed me to turbocharge financial freedom and i'm like hang on a second i can help people as well so i start to kind of people come for advice and guidance and i tell them they go and screw it up anyway. <laughs> so I'm like, well, you know, and I wasn't, it wasn't for money. It was just help. Yeah. Uh, so I was like, well, actually I can do this for them. So I started this, this company, this business to basically help people do what I've done mm -hmm. to, you know, um, build a property portfolio essentially. So that's our mission is to basically help people, um, achieve financial freedom by building property portfolios. So when people hear financial freedom, they're like, oh, look at this. Look at this guru, financial freedom. 
And I think it's a term that a lot of people, myself included, when I first heard it, I thought, oh, well, financial freedom, it's all right for the millionaires out there. But, you know, tell the people what financial freedom really means. So there's the the YouTube financial freedom, what you'd see on all these, you know, like um, all, the, all these, not podcasts, but, you know, shorts and all that kind of stuff. In reality, for me, what that means is basically um, having time. Like I bought time back. Remember, I was exchanging my time for money and now I don't need to do that yeah. because I'm earning passive income. And that allows me the freedom, the time to spend time with friends, family. Yeah. And do you know what? Like, I've reconnected with my family, man. Like, extended family. Like, I've come to America, like, the last two years. I've got to go again this year because I've got my whole mum's side of the family up there. Mm. I would have missed weddings and this and that and get-togethers. And, like, I'm talking a massive, like, number of people. And now I can reconnect with them. I'm there. I'm present. You know, the WhatsApp groups buzzing. Yeah. Same with Bangladesh, like I'm, I'm, you know, I always try to go regularly, but I can just get up and go. So it's yeah. that freedom to do what you want. It's to have enough money passively that it doesn't have to be passively, but to have enough money that pays all of your essentials. So your shopping, your mortgage, maybe your car payments, have all of that covered so that which buy a property portfolio portfolio for you that you don't need to worry about it holidays as well holidays yeah um it's about what you value the most so when i sit down with clients i'll sit down and i don't even talk properly with them you know i'll, I'll talk about well, what's your vision like, what is it what's the end game like what is it that you want to achieve what does life look like and take them to that place because that's what i did and that's what helped me to like get there so that vision of like tunnel vision of all right that's the lifestyle that i want now, don't get me wrong, if I wanted a private jet and this and that, I'd have to build even more and more and more, right? But the lifestyle that I wanted was to reconnect with extended family, was to have the freedom to go and spend quality time with friends and family. Um, it was the ability to basically not have that on my neck. Um, and now this business obviously started to help people with similar aspirations. So what are some of the reasons why someone would choose to work with you? Because there might be people listening there on, on there might be some people listening, sorry, that just think, well, I'll just go to right move. I'll just get a property. I'll put a tenant in it or I'll spend 10 grand on it and I'll sell it for a way higher profit. Why would they choose to work with you? It's a good question. Um, if they are that way inclined, fantastic. They're not my clients that I want to convince to come and work with me, right? Yeah. The people that are coming to work with me are people similar to myself who are time, well, when I was in the corporate sector, time poor, you know, uh, because commitments to family, because commitments to the job. Mm -hmm. But they, I take myself back to that time where I wanted to build the portfolio and I could have gone a lot quicker if I had the, the guidance. I would, it would save me from losing a huge amount of money because I've made those mistakes kind of going through all that. Well, what I'm basically there to do is help them mitigate some of those risks and mistakes and turbocharge that 
aspiration to build that portfolio. Once they got there, though, they don't have to necessarily quit their job. If they really love what they're doing, that's fine. It just means you've now got passive income to have the option. So if you were made redundant tomorrow, cool. I've got income coming in. I'm, I'm good. Okay, so why do you think yeah. people should invest when they can? Yeah. And when is the right time to invest? But also, what are some of the reasons why clients tell you they want to invest? So if I take myself back to 21, 22-year-old Wallier, who was earning a decent money, could have built up a you know, pot of money, but was blowing it. Yeah. Do I look back and be like, that was a good time? No. Do I look back and think, man, you idiot. <laughs> Why did you blow all of that? I'm like, on restaurants and this and that. I didn't even enjoy the food, man. Yeah. Um, do I have anything left from that? No. Yeah. It's all down the gutter. So goes to the second point, which is when is the right time to invest? Now is the right time to invest. It's never the wrong time to invest. I've never worked with anyone that said, oh man, I wish I'd waited later to invest. Everyone always says, I wish I invested earlier. So obviously interest rates are high. Inflation is high. Property prices are high. And you're saying that now is the best time to invest. Why? Well, we're picking up the best possible deals that we've ever done, right? So like crazy people that would have laughed us out of the room, right? We're now coming in with lowballs offers and they're considering it and they're, they're taking it if they want a quick sale. And the reason being, if you think of it this way, right? Yes, okay, the mortgage rate might be high, but the actual amount borrowed is a lot less. So that equalizes because your, your cost price of that purchase price of that property, sorry, would have been a lot higher before. Mm-hmm. But now because we're taking, we're getting properties at a lot lower purchase price, the amount borrowed is less. So even though the mortgage rates are higher, your actual amount that's coming out of the account is give or take 20 quid. Yeah. And I think a lot of, or something that a lot of people don't think about, you know, we see inflation as a negative thing. Inflation is a terrible thing at times, but it can also be a godsend for people that have property. Why is that? Rents, rents, rents. So rent goes up, man. So, um, you know, again, you don't want to be completely feasting your tenants because if you've got good tenants in there, you want to make sure that they're, you know, they've got a good home, a good quality home, and you're investing it in the right way and you're fixing it in a timely manner if there's any repairs. But, you know, when the contract comes to an end, rents will increase in line with inflation. But also... With any debt that's on the property, if you're leveraging yourself 75, 25%, a typical buy-to-let mortgage, that debt is always going to stay the same, isn't it? Yep. Whereas property prices are going to go up. That is well. So your capital of that property, if you're buying a house, absolutely, as you just said, will, will continue to go up. Where I mean, I'm buying kind of Southwest and South Wales, right, for myself. Uh, primarily, that's where I built my portfolio. Um, you know, they would say... 5% year-on-year growth is good. I've seen much more than that. Yeah. You know, we're talking north of 10 plus percent. And that's that's like your typical buy-to-let. That's not with a, you know, with a refurb to push the price up. Yeah. I'm talking just, just growth of stuff that I'm not intending to refinance and take any money out. But that is the reason why you would recommend people to buy with a mortgage because over time, inflation is going to pay off the debt. 
you aren't going to need to necessarily have that pot there. We know that property prices go up over a 10, 20, 30, 40 year period. So the debt is going to be eroded by the inflation. Yeah, exactly. So use lending, but also what lending does is it makes your money go further. So you're basically yeah, leveraging, you know, the whole leveraging other people's money too. Yeah. You know, and that's what you're doing. You're leveraging the bank's money. Let's be honest, right? I've been in banking. The bank always wins, yeah. right? So if you can leverage the bank's money for a win-win situation to allow you to um, start earning yeah. passive income, fantastic. It's a win-win for everybody. So I come to you. I want to... Let, let's now see like how does it work let's put the package together mm. i've got a little bit of a grasp of you know the business model well obviously i already know the business model but for the people listening i come to you walia i've got 75k i've worked really hard for it i want to draw one day at work two days at work i want to build a property portfolio you're the man to do it. Let's work together. What are we going to do? So I think the first step would be, um, what we don't do is we're not property sorcerers or deal packages, right? Cause that's a very transactional relationship. So that'd be like, here's a deal. Do you like it? No. Okay. Here's another deal. Do you like, and it's exhausting for both sides. Um, and, and, but don't get me wrong. It works for certain people. There's um, a, a lovely saying, what is it? If you throw enough shit at the wall, something will stick. Something will stick. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and and so that's not what we want to do, right? Um, so I uh, met with some. It sounds too highbrow, so I won't name check and stuff. But you know, these are CEOs now of banks. So they were old bosses from fifteen years ago, mm -hmm. who are now like in in really senior roles. And I remember having a conversation with them and about um, how to build this business. And they were they basically were saying. Long story short, um, you know, don't be looking at it in a five-year or ten-year, you know, cycle. You know how you do a business plan. Mm -hmm. Look at it in a hundred-year cycle. So we're looking at how do you build, not in terms of like in a hundred years after I died. Okay, it's going to be passed on to my children. It's how do you build a world-class proposition? How do you add value in the whole end-to-end -end journey? You know, so I put my product hat on. Right. Mm -hmm. The way I look at it is I I spent ten years in the in the banking sector where they've paid me. To coach me and mentor me to with all this knowledge well i'm going to take that knowledge and i'm going to apply it to what i'm doing now yeah so we look at the customer pain points in the in the whole end-to-end -end journey and we find solutions for it yeah we don't necessarily need to be paid on every bit in the added you know where we're adding value but clients should come in feeling that the money that they pay for any fees is like so worth it that it's you know, I'm getting so much more value than what I'm paying for. So I've decided yet that you are the man. We know why you're the man. Mm. What do we now do? let's talk about some of the, the nuts and bolts. Okay. So I don't know how to find a property. I definitely don't have a trades team. You know, how do I get this through the conveyancing process? So we would start the process with really understanding your vision. So forget property. Property is just a vehicle, right? Um, what is it they're trying to achieve? Yeah, like with anything, you know, in business strategy, like you need a vision, a mission, you know? Mm. Uh, 
I thought I used to think that was the fluffy stuff until I started to get into these roles. Yeah. But it isn't, man. That that's what drives you. So we spent time understanding that. What's your attitude to risk? Mm-hmm. So I've taken the model from like what IFAs use, uh, independent financial advisors or financial planners, and they they spend a lot of time at the front end really trying to understand all of that stuff. Yeah. Uh, and I've basically taken that and applied it to property because, well, they might their their vehicle is stocks and shares. Yeah. Ours is property. Yeah. So if you've got a system that ain't broke, you know. So, uh, but I've adapted it obviously. So, essentially, yeah, really understand the vision and help them flesh that out. Then, their attitude to risk. Then we've now got the ingredients to work out what the strategy is. Um, and how we're going to get to that that vision. Yeah. So we would spend time doing that, and once we've established that, um, I would then um, uh, I've sent them some videos to basically help them to kind of. Everyone's on different levels of knowledge. Some might have gone on courses, some might not have, but yeah. it just basically equalizes everyone's knowledge to that point. And then it's a case of um, you know agreeing. Okay, this is the plan. This is how we're going to box this off, and, and this is the time scales that we're going to work towards, mm-hmm. and then off we go. Uh, and so as soon as we've signed on the dotted line and, you know, like cleared invoices and whatever, um, we essentially kick off the process with uh, taking your requirements, so almost like business requirements, what are the, what are the requirements of that, that client. That will go out to our operations team. Uh, they would then work with sorcerers and agents and, you know, people in the industry. Vendors. Vendors. Um, vendors meaning like people who want to sell a property Um, and we would run marketing campaigns to do that as well so it costs us quite a bit of money and then we would find a property to their exact spec so So you're matching the property with what I've asked for basically you know so I'm going to tell you exactly what I want you're going to go out and find it exactly but you might not know what you want yeah right so that's my job to help navigate all of that to work out well, based on the vision that you have and the strategy you're thinking, this is how we're going to basically um, get to that. And it might be, again, I'm just making it up, but it might be, okay, well, we're going to build five buy-to-lets and then we might do some service accommodation yeah. because they're higher grossing but higher risk. But we we can take a bit more risk because we've got a, a number of buy-to-lets that are just going to keep grossing. So you found me the property. Then what happens after that? So we find property found, ding, 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 you know, and then we basically uh, kick off the legal process. So you may need lending on it. So we've got um, we've got different options for lending. So again, I've got partnership agreements with uh, professionals across the board to help with that buying experience. Obviously, if you've got your own people, that's fine. Mm-hmm. Um, but we've got people to help with bridging with Sharia compliant halal finance, with normal mortgages, so I'd prefer it across to them. Yeah. The agreements with them is they would basically be in touch with you within 24 hours and they will be basically quoting up and helping you with that. Now, because we've done so many, we work absolutely, there's a, there's a strong synergy there. Yeah. We have bi-weekly meetings to check on cases and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. So lending would kick off, whichever way you're going to do it. Then you, you're conveyancing, so we work with a number of solicitors again. Uh, trusted vetted solicitors, people that I've used myself, because until you've gone through it yourself, you can't really vouch for them. Um, it's impossible to find a good solicitor. So oh, yeah. if you've got them, yeah. keep hold of them yeah. and don't tell anyone else who they are. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> Top tip. But in all honesty, like, you know, solicitors can take time. And 
I think the longer term plan for this business is to bring people in house. So we put control of it. Don't tell us what the long term vision is just yet. <laughs> Don't tell us what it is just yet. So yeah, we've got our. T- I mean, there's, there's lots of plans, but I'll touch on it later. But yeah, um, so yeah, solicitors to help you to buy the property. Okay. Um, and they'll they'll help. And again, I've got bi weekly calls with them to to help manage all of that. So at the minute, you've found me the property. You have set me up with a mortgage broker, so the finance is taken care of. You've also negotiated the property and got me a good price on it. Obviously, I don't want to be overpaying for that property. You have set me up with a solicitor who is going to manage the progression of the of the legals. I've completed on the property. Mm. Then what happens? Now to the biggest pain point of all of my clients when I talk to them about, what is your biggest pain point? Working with builders. Right. So what we do is we've got a number of building firms that we work with, larger scale building firms. Uh, we don't work with man in a van because yeah. if he goes off sick, then project grinds to a halt. Uh, they will actually provide a schedule of works right at the front end. So when we actually agree the property, they will come with us mm. to um, uh, basically quote up and we'd understand what the costs are then of the deal. Um, so at that point, the property is complete. Ideally, completes on a Friday, they pick up the keys on a Monday and then we start the refund process. So that we try to reduce void period. So we, we obviously project manage that. We've got project managers in-house to, to do that. Mm. Um, and they would essentially work to the schedule of works. Okay. Um, and our job is to project manage all of that to ensure that the client is um, getting weekly updates. We're managing, working through any of the kind of issues. Uh, and we're reporting back, obviously, anything that, that comes up and, and how we're solving those problems. So the property is refurbed. It's a lovely spec. It's ready to rent out. Are there any other stages? Yeah, what I'd say is, though, um, always scoop on the property price, invest in the refurb. Okay. Because it's the refurb that's going to get you end value. It's going to get you your um, higher rents. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. So where people have you know where we broken process and they said oh could we not do this not do that not do that later on they end up paying for it every time yeah they end up paying for it through a lower end valuation yeah they end up paying for it through extra things that have now gone wrong or more damp that's been found because we didn't do whatever the work properly because we took shortcuts on it because the budget was cut yeah so just just invest in the refurb that is so important because the job gets done properly yeah and then it's you know, the third thing is you don't then have to be going back to it. To I guess it's future proofed, isn't it? Yes. You yeah. know, you don't need to touch that property again for you know hopefully yes. ten years. Yeah. Whereas otherwise, it's going to be five hundred quid here, five hundred quid here, a thousand pound here, a thousand pound here, yeah. and then at least you can just put everything into one larger refurb, and it's and it's sorted. And look at your money, most of you money back out. So once the refurb's done, we'll then. Um, look to get it let out if it's a letting or if it's obviously looking to be sold then obviously we'll work with the agents to do that so we've got yeah. established agents that we work with in, in South Wales yeah. that will let property or will sell it and they again work with the building firm and they'll work with us right at the, the start of the process where they'll provide independent valuations as well so what we don't do is oh one of his opinion is the yeah. done at value of this property is going to be whatever we'll we'll have an indication based on you know software but we'll always use a, an established local agent to provide us with an independent quote. And then are we 
well, not me, but are then is the client then supposed to find the tenant themselves to put in the property or no, are you able to help with that as well? Exactly. So that's what the estate agent will do. So they, they will, if it's going to be rented out, they will then take care of that side of it. Again, we're, we're involved in the whole process, hand-holding them throughout it to kind of mitigate time um, that they spend going back and forth, but also yeah. um, managing through any issues. So, I don't know, they might, the agent comes in, they're like, oh, bit of a snag there that hasn't that, that plug hasn't been put in properly well she, she just needs to come to me and i'll deal with it with the builders they don't need to go and tell the client we can deal with all the minor stuff so the clients are paying for you to take on all of the headaches of the chasing the solicitor chasing the broker making sure the finances uh making sure that all the finances with the builders and paying the builders their payments on time and just making sure that all of this works like clockwork. Yeah. And that's what they're paying for. They're paying for... Basically, a completely tailor-made, bespoke, um, end-to-end handheld package. Yeah. So if we're finding property with a big enough discount, they've already covered the cost of my fees, right? Yeah. Big tick. So they that now it's basically free. I'm a free resource for them. And then it's all the other bits. So one thing we did miss out, um, what we've recently started to do is, um, the other pain point was accountants and banking. Yeah. So once they've incorporated, some people want to incorporate their business, uh, buying company, It's really, sometimes it's a pain in the backside to open a bank account. So we've done a deal with Metro Bank where they only put a bank account with them within three days, SLA, and that's a written agreement we've got with them. So the fee is basically in the discount anyway. Yeah. And but all on the top headaches. of that, uh, all but of the headaches, on top of that, they've got access to your whole power team, yeah. all of your connections. Yeah. We call it the ecosystem. The right? ecosystem. So the whole ecosystem. Yeah. Is it's a done for you service. Yes. And it's, it's basically built to um, take all of those headaches away. Yeah. One, to go back to what I was saying before, because they are time poor. Uh, because of family, because of work, they don't have the time to. I'm sure they can go and build the knowledge and yeah. all of that and do it themselves. But the idea is we're we're saving the money from the cost of you know the actual price of the property, but we're also saving the money from mistakes, mistakes, yeah. um, and also and that's an intangible thing. You can't see it right mm-hmm. until you do it. Mm-hmm. And then the third thing is the headache of dealing with builders or dealing with solicitors and mortgage people you like you know we, we will take that headache away and it just becomes a really streamlined process i've got uh, the last few things that i want to ask you um obviously i've seen that you're doing a little bit more work and giving back and helping your community within your business now just like you were talking about when you were younger and in the corporate sector yeah. now in your business, I mean, I think you're doing some work with the local mosque. Yeah, so which looks exciting. Yeah, the mom approached me, said, "Look, can you um, now you've quit your job? <laughs> <laughs> when are you going to come and help us with, you know, this structure work?" And I was like, "Oh man, you stuck it on me." Yeah. So um, yeah, more than happy to help and support um, local community projects, and um, you know, especially uh, a prayer. Uh, obviously, me being from a uh, faith and spiritual background um, happy to support them with it and essentially what we're doing is refurbishing um, the complete outside of this this mosque um, 
you know, they it looks really run down. Like it looks like mm-hmm. a uh, it's graffiti and it's metal doors, really uninviting. You know, it's not a great place for 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 sisters. You yeah. know, you got these like dark stairs into this dingy room. No wonder they don't get anyone there. Yeah. So it's like, how do we um, have that consultation with them? And when you see potential in that, whereas other people would just see a dingy, dark building, you with your developer hat on and and the partner that you're working with obviously sees something that can be turned into something beautiful. Yeah, yeah. So look, obviously the uh, architect that we're using is again in our ecosystem that we work closely with. So he's come in and we've basically worked out how we can architecturally make that space a better space yeah. for for uh, worshippers but also not just for worship but also for like community i'd say community stuff you know whether it's just bringing people together um and and helping with the objectives of the mosque which is you know um helping to uh, help those suffering from mental health or helping those with um you know they're going through some some stuff and having a safe space for them um, so there's all sorts that we can start to do now, which are um, which was an accessible, doable before because the space wasn't quite inviting, quite right for them. What do you think your dad would think of of you doing this? Do you know what? I haven't even thought about pops, man. Honestly, um, helping other Muslims in the area. Yeah, I mean, just just helping the wider community because this is obviously that's a very niche. specific project for Muslims. Um, I think he'd be very proud of that, yeah. you know, because he was, uh, but also helping just wider community because he, he had it in him as well. I think he was the were the Bangladesh Association that was set up in Bristol, called Bristol Bath and West. Yeah. He was one of the founding members. He was a, the, the first treasurer. So he had it in him. I, I, and I look at that with pride, more yeah. pride than his entrepreneurial career, you know. So I think he'd be really, really happy with... Um, with me giving back and not just being greed, 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 money, money, money. You know, it's about holistically looking at your life as a whole. So last couple of things, where do you cover? Where where do you cover for this property business? Where can people, um, you know, where's your, where's your main area for investing for you and your clients? Yeah, so literally the same, same space. I, I, where I have invested is where I'm specializing for my clients. So essentially that's South Wales and Southwest of England. Okay. Uh, I know the patch really well because I've done it myself. So, um, and that's allowed me to get to this point. And so it's, a, you know, I, I know certain areas by streets. I know, you know, I know it to that level of detail. Mm-hmm. Um, we've got lots of data on it as well. Um, but that will grow as well. I mean, that's where I specialize in, but I have partners UK wide where we get access from Scotland all the way down to pool. Yeah. Last thing. You can have a minute if you need to think about it. Where does Walia see himself in 10 years time? What's my 10 year plan? Goodness me, that's a good question. I see myself definitely still helping people. I, I get a lot from it, right? I, uh, again, it's an inherent thing, clearly. I think I'd be stepping away from the day-to-day operations of this business. Um, I'd still be involved because, yes, it's a business, but we're helping people build wealth. 
we're helping people with an objective. So I'd still be involved more strategically and, and guiding that and navigating that ship. Because you're looking at scaling the business, aren't you? That's right. And you're bringing a few people in that can really help you facilitate the amount of people that are wanting to work with you. Yes, exactly. So, you know, we want to go national, um, but we've got to conquer our patch first. We've got to do, you know, amazing stuff there. And that will then lead to uh, working with partners UK-wide to become a national organization. Uh, and that needs, you know, strategic guidance, you know, um, ability to navigate that ship at that level. I can't be in the weeds doing operational stuff, et cetera, et cetera. So you need to build build the capacity in that business. I did tell a little bit of a lie. I've actually got one thing that I want to elaborate on. And I think it'd be useful to know for, for people listening, you know, have you done all this on your own or have you got a mentor? Have you got somebody that's, you know, guiding you now? It's your business, but is there somebody that's showing you the way or maybe helping you grow or maybe strengthening your weaknesses in, in different areas, you know? Yeah. I think a lot of the time people hear mentor. I don't need a mentor. Yeah, or I've got to pay for that mentor. And, oh, yeah. I forget that. So I've had different mentors for different things um, right throughout my career from corporate sector to even now. Um, some I paid for, some I have needed to because they're just doing it at the, you know, they're, they're established. Mm -hmm. So um, some mentors have helped me to unlock things in my mindset. Some have been more for longer term things so you can have very specific things that mental helps you with or, or more broader things uh, i'm working with a chap called liam davies who um i'm on a program with who's helping me with that kind of growth scaling up yeah. uh building things bigger uh he's essentially helping to unlock those um i guess key stakeholder and strategic problems to to you know build capacity in that business to grow it and scale it because i think sometimes if you're the one that's in the day-to-day -day operations of the business sometimes you might need somebody that's just a fly on the wall and can pinpoint the areas that might need a little bit of work so it yeah. seems like liam's kind of the guy that's come in to to do that mm -hmm. and watch from a distance and kind of let you know yep. right this needs done here, this needs done here. Or... Yeah. I, I, look, I, I've worked with management consultants like throughout my career and I've always found value in it. And essentially it's a very similar thing. Um, but I've got him as a almost permanent management consultant, but, but also helping with the marketing side as well. And that's really helping. And, and I guess the future is that we'll, I'll be looking to partner with Liam. So we'll be merging uh, or partnering. Um, and that's really, I genuinely believe that will be one of the key aspects to unlocking, yeah. you know, really big growth. I just wanted to touch on that because I think a lot of people think that having help or asking for help or allowing somebody to help, obviously you've been always been the manager. You've now got your own business to be able to say, actually, no, I can listen to somebody else. It's still my business, but maybe there can be somebody that comes in and and helps you grow. I mean, there's a saying in property um, that collaboration is better than competition, yeah. and you can you can grow five times faster mm. by collaborating with the competition rather than seeing them yeah. 
as competitors. I call it the win-win-win, right? <laughs> Which is, yeah. there's a win for the client, ultimately, because you don't have a business if they're not winning. Yeah. There's a win for you, and there's a win for your competitors slash partners slash collaborators, because now everyone eats. And yeah. so you'd rather have, you know, a piece of a bigger pie than, uh, you know, all competing for that one slice of yeah. <laughs> pizza, right? Yeah. Right, Walia, thank you very much. Thank you. Where can people find you? Where can people book in a call with you? Where can people, what's your social media? Tell the people. Yeah, I'm on, um, I'm on LinkedIn, so Walia Rahman. Um, Look in the camera. LinkedIn, uh, <laughs> Walia Rahman. Uh, Instagram, uh, Walia Rahman Property. Uh, but yeah, look, let's let's um, drop me a drop me a DM if you've got any questions. Um, I'm more than happy to to help people on different paths on their journey to investing. Awesome! Thank you very much. Thank you, Bavro. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me.